Matheson. This is Counting the Cost on Al Jazeera, your weekly look at the world of business and economics. This week, the UK's government's introduced big tax cuts to try to boost economic growth, but the International Monetary Fund is warning the measures could stoke soaring inflation. So what's next for the British economy? Also this week, central banks around the world are raising interest rates. They're trying to tame inflation, but that could come at a high cost for the world's economy. Plus, from Bollywood to Nollywood, why two of the world's biggest film industries are struggling. Britain's Prime Minister is betting big on a fiscal policy that includes the biggest tax cuts in the UK in half a century. It's all going to be funded by borrowing. Liz Truss is determined the plan is going to kick-start the British economy, but her critics say it's a reckless gamble. And the plans seem to have backfired already. The pound's fallen to record lows. Financial markets have gone into turmoil. In a rare public criticism of a leading global economy, the International Monetary Fund is warning the plan could increase inequality in the UK. Well, the IMF is urging the British government to change its mind. The collapse in the pound has been followed by a surge in the UK's borrowing costs. Britain's now paying more than the rates paid by European economies, which are heavily in debt, such as Italy and Greece. The Bank of England says it would buy government bonds in an emergency to halt a bond market crash. It has also signalled it could raise interest rates in response to the slump in the value of the pound. Millions of British homeowners are now braced for big rises in mortgage payments. Neve Barker has been gauging public reaction to the new budget. He reports from the British town of Gravesend. It is, by any stretch of the imagination, a huge economic gamble. On the one hand, slashing people's taxes. On the other, massively ramping up borrowing. But will it all mean, as people hope, that everybody in the United Kingdom will have a little bit more money in their pockets to spend on bolstering the economy? Or will it simply mean, as the opposition maintain, that the rich will get much, much richer? The plans include cutting national insurance, corporation tax, a tax on buying property, spending tens of billions of dollars on shoring up the energy sector so that people's bills don't go through the roof, and also, controversially, on lifting a cap on bankers' bonuses. I'm in the town of Gravesend, about 30 kilometres or so from London. It's neither particularly rich nor particularly deprived, but it could be doing much, much better. It's got a huge concentration of independent businesses. Many of these owners are looking for the economic space to breathe hopefully it will help because you know we are in difficult times at the moment everyone's you know being careful really careful with their money just to you know pay the bills put food on the table so any sort of luxuries in shops like for mine for example um is it's difficult if you look up and down the high street you can see all the shops are slowly starting to go um if we all go, then there isn't anybody earning little bits of money that they can then go and spend in the big shops that they're going to make their money out of. And the banks, if you ain't got money going through the bank, you're not going to, they're not going to make money anyway, are they? So you're saying that uh, the economy needs to be driven not just from the top, but from the bottom and the yes. middle too? I think it, it, it needs to sort of start at the bottom and work up. 
The truth is that years of austerity, the pandemic, and now, of course, the highest inflation in 40 years, and most certainly the highest amongst G7 countries, mean people are very, very reluctant to part with their cash. Battling this economic downturn for the government will most certainly be an uphill struggle in the months and years to come. Well, to discuss all of this, I'm joined from London by Arfie Sterling, the Research Director and Chief Economist at New Economics Foundation Think Tank. Arfie, thank you very much indeed for being with us. Within a few hours of this policy being revealed, it was already being criticised by investors. The list appears to be getting longer. Is this likely to work? How much of a gamble is this, particularly financially, for Liz Truss? Well, I think the unfortunate thing here, and actually I've been guilty of this myself in the past, is that this really isn't a gamble insofar as we actually know how this is going to turn out. Uh, There were warnings before the budget that uh, this would cause, you know, uh, uh, uncertainty at at best in markets, because when you announce billions of pounds of government spending that do not accompany that, either with an economic forecast or a plan of how to pay for it, the markets start to wonder, are you credible? Um, That was predictable, and we've now seen that play out. But actually, probably at an even deeper level, this isn't a gamble, because the UK has spent 10 years now, the best part of a decade, certainly prior to COVID-19, doing exactly the same thing, you know, cutting taxes for uh, businesses, uh, for private individuals, particularly in a way that benefits the richest, fastest than everyone else. And because we've been doing that for a decade, we know how it ends. You know, it ends in stagnant earnings growth. The UK has still got lower average real earnings than it had in 2008. It ends in crumbling public services. You know, we have uh, grossly under-resourced education, hospitals. Uh, people now have to wait hours for an ambulance. They have to wait potentially weeks for a GP appointment. And it ends in um, stagnant uh, life expectancy. Mm. There, there has been this very blunt uh, warning that's come from the IMF in using language that it usually only uses for emerging markets. Is that an indication of just how concerned the IMF is about this? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not the first person to reach the IMF's uh, point of view on these things, but it is striking that they've chosen to comment on um, the UK economy in this way. And it's just another indicator that the UK is spending at quite a rapid pace its institutional and political credibility. Um, And, you know, you see that now with government ministers um, coming out and uh, talking about government ministers and government supporters and government outriders coming out and talking about, you know, financial institutions, the IMF as now left wing uh, you know, economic uh, bastions, um, when, of course, you know, it, it was quite the opposite a few years ago. Um, there's almost now uh, no one left. The government hasn't accused of being left wing. And I think that only further harms their credibility. The UK government's got to borrow billions of, uh, of dollars in order to be able to pay for this. It's openly admitted that. How difficult is it going to be able to, to actually fund this? What kind of structure could it possibly use that is going to allow for the tax cuts and other elements of this policy, because it's not just about tax cuts, that's going to make this work? So, I mean, well, actually, an interesting point is the government is desperate, of course, not to borrow in dollars. Um, I mean, obviously, you can describe the amount of borrowing in whatever currency uh, we like, but they'll be very keen to make sure the borrowing is issued in pounds and kept in pounds as much as possible, because that means they can keep control to some extent um, Um, of the economic effects. Um, But in essence, uh, borrowing like this has to be paid for in one of three ways. You can either leave it as as an increase in debt um, and work to make sure that that pile of debt falls over time gradually as a proportion of the overall economy. 
Um, you can raise taxes uh, to pay uh, that debt or to speed up the process by which it falls relative to the economy. Or you can do the same in terms of cutting public spending. Government has to do one of those three things. Um, and it looks like at the moment that the first of those, letting it just fall naturally, is, in, is increasingly problematic, especially while there's no forecast and while governments don't believe, sorry, while markets don't believe that is a viable plan. So that does then leave us to the remaining two. This government certainly does not look like it's about to raise taxes. Um, in fact, you know, the whole point of this budget was to cut taxes. So you are left with a final possibility, which is a cut in public services. And the government has already told departments to prepare for efficiency savings. Um, now, the extent to which that's possible, either politically or economic, um, is, is hard to tell. The UK has had a decade of cut public spending, um, but it looks like this government is about to test that. So the IMF is warning against it. We're seeing an increasingly long list of investors who are very cautious about this. Even the Bank of England says it's going to have to step in in order to try to throttle, if you like, some of the, the, the as they describe it, the excesses, the, the, the way that this is going to pan out. Is this policy actually going to be able to be put in place when there is so much negativity against it and there are so many um, organisations who are prepared to work against it? So I think the government um, is is struggling. It's already coming up against um, that pressure. Um, in the end, it's political pressure that will shape this. Um, there is no sort of constitutional mechanism to prevent an elected government from doing what it wants to do other than losing political support. Um, so we'll have to see that play out. But I think it's quite important to um, just reflect on the reason why these uh, different institutions, both um, you know, uh, both in the UK and abroad, are worried about this. And it's quite remarkable because in, many, in, in terms of the economics, if you cut taxes, um, that, is, um, that is reflationary. That means it's, it, it should increase inflation because it increases money and spending in the economy. That tends to mean um, interest rates can rise, which should actually um, mean that the pound um, gets stronger. What we've actually seen is the pound crashing um, as a result of this. So it's the inverse of what the economic logic should tell you. And the reason for that is because the UK is paying a premium, if you like, for incompetency, an incompetency premium, where markets don't buy, literally, the idea that these tax cuts are going to lead to higher uh, growth in GDP. And therefore, they're selling pounds, not buying pounds. And UK investors are investing abroad, not at home, leading to a collapse in the currency. You mentioned that the UK government was determined to keep the borrowing in pounds. But what is the risk, do you think, that whatever uh, future economically the Britain is facing could spill over into other markets around the world? What kind of influence do you think um, that could have? It is having an effect already. <clears throat> We've seen spillover effects in bond markets outside the UK, most notably in the US. Um, so it's, it, it is certainly a bad thing for the global economy and it will become a drag on the global economy the worse it gets. But it is certainly not a crisis for the global economy in the way that it is a crisis locally in the UK um, and for our neighbours. Arthur Sterling, thank you very much indeed for being with us. Many thanks. The UK's new fiscal policy comes as central banks around the world are sharply increasing interest rates to curb inflation. From Washington to Jakarta, nearly every major bank is making borrowing more expensive to try to cool down prices. The most widespread tightening of monetary policy on record is raising fears about possible harm to the global economy. The U.S. Federal Reserve has been by far the most significant player in this shift in global economic policymaking. 
It's raised its interest rate by three quarters of a point for the third time last week. It's signaling that more large rate hikes are to come. The European Central Bank is expected to continue increasing rates in October. The ECB is now seen taking its own interest rate to almost 3% next year, from 0.75% now. The Swiss National Bank carried out the biggest hike ever to its key lending rate, ending several years of negative interest rates in Switzerland. Indonesia, Taiwan, the Philippines and South Africa are also among the countries where rates have been lifted. But unlike the rest of the world, China has cut interest rates twice this year. Inflation in the country is far lower than in the U.S. and other countries. Well, the dollar surged to a new two-decade high after the Federal Reserve raised interest rates last week. It's mainly against Europe's single currency, the euro, which fell below parity with the greenback for the first time since 2002. The dollar is up more than 19% against a basket of foreign currencies. Japan's the latest to have taken direct action in foreign exchange markets to shore up currencies. Well, joining me now from Boston in Massachusetts is James McCann. James is Deputy Chief Economist at Aberdeen Standard Investments. Very good to have you with us. Now, central banks around the world use interest rates regularly to control inflation, but it's unusual to see them doing it almost in synchronization. How do you think this is going to play out? Well, I think it just creates more headwinds for the global economy. I think when you have this coordinated or perhaps not coordinated, but at least synchronized tightening in policy, I think you get ripple effects that feed not just through for, to individual economies, but through more broadly. You know, I think absolutely that's why we're expecting growth to slow very significantly as we move into 2023, because I think some of these tightening cycles we're seeing in places like the US, in Europe, uh, and a range of emerging markets too, as they try and match what they're seeing in, in, in developed market financial conditions. Mm. You know, I think those are all really severe headwinds for, for global growth. And I think the risk is that in aggregate, they prove even more so. Mm. And if I understand it correctly, one of the things that the central banks are constantly working against is timescale. Because although they make these announcements, the actual uh, trickle-down effect, if you like, of, of the kind of tightening and controls that they put in place isn't really seen for months. And yet, of course, they're trying to deal with an inflationary situation, which is immediate. What kind of problems does that cause? I mean, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult for central banks, especially when they've fallen a long way behind the curve and they feel that they need to go really quickly and there's a lot of urgency behind this tightening. So they need to adjust rates rapidly. The difficulty is, as you mentioned, they're not going to see the full effect of that for a long period of time, potentially six to 12 to 18 months. And so in some ways they're, they're flying blind. They can look at leading indicators of activity in, you know, especially in interest rate sensitive sectors like the housing market, like durable goods, et cetera. But the difficulty really is for central banks they know they need to get policy tight and they know they need to slow the economy, but they don't really know in real time when that's happened. So I think the risk for them is that they deliver a degree of over tightening. And actually what we see is growth slowing much more than they intended into 2023. A lot of the inflationary situations we're finding at the moment are down to things like the war in Ukraine and, you know, delays in supply chains as a result of that, but also, of course, from the pandemic, none of which is under the control of the central banks. Is, is this really the best way for the banks to be able to deal with this when those elements are things that they simply can't influence? Look, there's no doubt that central banks have had sort of unhelpful shocks in the form of, as you mentioned, global energy prices in the form of global food prices, in the form of uh, disruptions to global supply chains. 
But really, I think when they look at their own economies, they're really faced with deep and, you know, really concerning imbalances. You know, the U.S. labor market in some metrics has never looked this tight and it's generating a lot of wage pressures. So, you know, absolutely some of these you know, perhaps transitory is the way we spoke about it last year, but some of these international factors are making central banks' jobs harder. But I think when they look closer to home, they do see economies that post-COVID are showing huge imbalances, and those imbalances are creating inflation. And I think they, they realize that they have to act to slow growth at the very least to try and bring those imbalances back into order. Uh, but I think that is going to be a tough, a tough ask without maybe having to slow so much that you move into recession. Yeah. The inflationary pressures that we're talking about, of course, are not all over the globe. We're seeing growth slowing down in, in China and Europe as well. Again, how difficult does that make it for central banks around the world to try to, to, to carry out this balancing act in the face of different uh, markets moving at different rates? There is a, a degree of dislocation going on, on here. And we know, for instance, China is a great example of an economy. Some other economies in East Asia as well are showing this characteristic in which you've not got these inflation pressures, their recovery from COVID hasn't hasn't been as robust. And we know that they're still suffering severe disruptions from 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 their zero COVID policies. They look to keep a lid on, on COVID cases in their country. And so they're not seeing the same degree of, of, of inflation pressures, but equally they're not seeing strong growth and, 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 a, and a strong recovery either. So their, their policy is moving counter-cyclically. And in some examples, Japan is an example too, where they've not been tightening. That's creating quite a lot of pressure on exchange rates as those, as those policy divergences start to pick up and that generates its, its own issues. So I do think, you know, you're getting this degree of global divergence. I think the pressure is in general towards weaker growth, but it's creating, you know, strange opportunities for investors, I suppose, but, but strange dynamics where you're getting pretty large and extended moves in, in currencies. And I think that's creating their own headaches, especially for, for big export countries. Um, like, like, and uh, sorry, big trading nations like, like China and Japan. The central banks around the world obviously work uh, independently of each other, but the driving currency in the world is, of course, the U.S. dollar. It's certainly one of the uh, the, the top few. So, what um, significance does it have? What the Fed, how the Fed reacts to this? Because really, it seems as though, irrespective of what other central banks do, it's down to the U.S. to really drive this. The, the dollar just plays a critical role in setting global financial conditions. Its its role as a reserve currency just gives it, you know, even though the U.S. economy is enormous in itself, it gets that extra little leg up given the role that the dollar plays in the global financial system. So there's no doubt that the Fed's policy is is critical in, in having an effect on, on financial conditions across a range of markets, particularly in emerging markets. So that's one of the reasons, you know, why we do feel that if the U.S. economy goes into recession next year, as we as we think it will do, and that's driven by a significant Fed tightening cycle, then that leaves a lot of countries vulnerable, both through the tightening in financial conditions delivered by that stronger dollar and that rise in, in U.S. interest rates, and also then by the drag from weaker U.S. imports and you know that classic big driver of global activity, the, the U.S. economy and particularly the U.S. consumer. So. I do think the U.S. is really is really critical in this and still plays this role as sort of a, 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 a setter of global financial conditions to some extent, at least. Good to have you with us and counting the cost, James McCann. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.
Indian movie revenues have risen every year for a decade, reaching around $2 billion in 2019 before the pandemic started. But most recent releases have bombed at the box office, and Bollywood's domination of the Indian film industry appears to be uncertain. Producers are taking a novel approach to attract people back to the cinema, as Pavni Matal reports from New Delhi. Moviegoers are in for a treat. It's National Cinema Day in India. Ticket prices have been slashed to less than a dollar. Many shows are sold out. So today I got this ticket wherein they are giving popcorns and Pepsi for free. So it's really nice that I do not have to purchase them. Otherwise I'd have to like spend so much amount of money to actually go and sit in the theatres to watch a movie. Hindi cinema, often called Bollywood, is in crisis. One estimate suggests 90% of films released in the past four months have bombed at the box office. Lal Singh Chadha was one of the most anticipated movies of the year. Adapted from Forrest Gump, it stars one of India's most popular stars, Amir Khan. Poor attendance forced theatres to cancel hundreds of shows. Hindi cinema is a multi-billion dollar industry and one of India's soft powers. Its struggles are part of a global phenomenon. The pandemic has changed how and where we watch movies. Many people are also cutting back on entertainment expenses because of inflation. Meanwhile, streaming sites have enjoyed an increase in subscribers. There's also growing competition from regional and global cinema. So those people who were used to their staple fare of Hindi movies are now watching movies in Tamil and Telugu and Malayalam, are watching French and Spanish shows and films. And therefore, there is a certain broadening of taste that has happened. And certain movies which were made in a pre-pandemic scenario for a certain type of audience, that audience has changed now. This chart-topping song and recently married lead couple created a buzz around Brahmastra. The superhero film is rooted in Indian mythology. It opened to mixed reviews but packed theatres. But with Brahmastra, what happened is the, uh, there was constant spectacle and uh, there was this origin story kind of thing. And, you know, I think a lot of children were very interested in, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the coolness of a Desi Marvel or DC universe where there was a lot of special effects and all that kind of stuff. So there was definitely curiosity about the movie. Producers say filmmakers need to take creative risks. Several big-budget films are releasing soon. The industry hopes these will return some of the shine to the silver screen. Ready. Well, Nigeria is the world's second largest producer of movies, but Nollywood, as it's known, lacks the resources to compete with Hollywood and Bollywood. Ahmed Idris looks at the challenges facing the sector. Action! This low-budget film is expected to be released on streaming platforms in less than a month. And with good reviews, it may make it into the cinemas worldwide. It was produced on a budget of $10,000, but the director says it took a lot of convincing to raise even that relatively small amount. The resources are there. It's just the fund. If the fund is right, then we can produce a blockbuster Nollywood is the second biggest film industry in the world. It churns out an estimated 800 to 1,000 movies a year. Filmmakers say a lack of funding is holding back the industry. Despite the number of productions, few banks and businesses are willing to invest in the sector. And that means 
poor or inferior equipment and low pay for crews. In four years, Sandra Okunzua has appeared in 50 films, many of them in the lead role. Despite her success, she doesn't earn enough. When the pay is not enough, you're like, okay, how is this going to be enough to take care of me, my well-being and all of that? But the most important thing to have is the passion. The break-even wasn't easy. Nollywood movies struggle to make a name for themselves in international markets dominated by Hollywood blockbusters and lavish Bollywood productions. So distributors like Chikeze Ezeoke provide platforms to enable low-budget films to reach as many viewers as possible. It's promising. It's something um, that's, um, that's good. But when you're starting, it's not really, really that big. But um, those that have been there for a long time, they're actually cashing out. Industry leaders say improving quality and originality will help Nigeria compete with the best in the world. As long as we do things that are indigenous here, borrow the technology, bring in the equipment, yes, fine, but let the stories continue to be homegrown. There is little government support for the sector, even though it contributes 3% to Nigeria's annual gross domestic product. Until more money is invested in upgrading equipment, Nollywood fans will have to make do with original storylines and promising talent, but inferior productions. And that is our show for this week. But remember, you can get in touch with us via Twitter. Use the hashtag AJCTC when you do. Or drop us an email. Our address is countingthecost at aljazeera.net. But there's more for you online at aljazeera.com slash CTC. That's going to take you straight to our page, which has individual reports, links, and entire episodes for you to catch up on. That's it for this edition of Counting the Cost. I'm Rob Matheson. From the whole team, thanks for joining us. The news in Al Jazeera is next.